Since World War II, American primacy has created a global order that, for better or worse, has offered some degree of certainty in East Asia. But with China on course to become the world's largest economy in the coming decades, there are questions both in Washington and Beijing about how that newfound power will manifest. Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and today we're joined by former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, who's recently joined the Kennedy School as a senior fellow. Mr. Rudd, thank you for joining us. Good to be here at Harvard. So you've clearly been interested in China for a long time. You studied uh, Chinese language and culture in college. Uh, you're fluent in Mandarin. Um, what spawned your interest in Chinese culture in the first place? Well, if you grew up on a dairy farm and a beef property like I did in Australia, China sounded pretty interesting by comparison. <laughs> um, but seriously, I think uh, way back then, and here I'm talking about the 80s, I um, had a feeling that uh, China would be a very, very large part of my country's future uh, and probably a large part of the world's future. And I had a deep interest in what I knew then of its history. And therefore, I concluded that I really needed to wrap my head around this phenomenally complex subject. So I went off to the Australian National University, whose course in modern Chinese, classical Chinese and Chinese history is one of the better ones in the world and um, spent five years of my life there. And uh, as a result, China's been part and parcel of what I've done in multiple incarnations since. So uh, we had Graham Allison on a while back to talk about China's rise. And um, he warned about the Thucydides trap, mm -hmm. and uh, which is pitting an established power against an up-and-coming up power with the threat of war hanging in the balance. Do you see it as an inevitability, or are there places where you, the United States and China can cooperate towards mutually beneficial goals? Well, I'm from that old fashioned sort of progressive view of politics which says that uh, conflict is never is never inevitable it's always avoidable and that peace is not only possible uh, but desirable and deliverable furthermore i have the same view about poverty and i have the same view about the opportunities for development but let's just stick to the question of uh, graham's analysis of the thucydides trap more interestingly um, uh, than what thucydides himself had to say about this uh, in his analysis of events way back when. The Chinese over the last decade or so have themselves, through their own academies, analyzed this very question. That is the intersection of interests of an established global power and a rising global power. In fact, across central Chinese television, they ran a 10-part series looking at the rise and fall of empires uh, back uh, to the days of Alexander, to the present. Uh, and uh, there... That analysis um, and what's gone on in their think tanks has given rise to a new concept being advanced in Chinese international relations theory and practice in the last two years, and it's called this, a new type of great power relationship. Um, in the Chinese, it is xinxing daguo guanxi, um, first floated by Hu Jintao, now taken as his central um, motif uh, by President Xi Jinping. Uh, it is his response to the Thucydides trap, which is how can we construct sufficient commonality of interest and institutional purpose for the global order to avoid conflict with the United States on the way through. That is their concept. I think the good thing that's happened since then 
as you start to see the evolution of regular summertry between the Chinese and the Americans. We had the first one last year at Sunnylands mm-hmm. in California with an open agenda on where to take this relationship in the future. The second one should happen in the second half of this year in China. Uh, this, I think, is a good development. Prior to that, there was no regular summertry. Finally, however, this is where the rubber hits the road. What is the content of this concept? Mm-hmm. What is its opera- operational characteristics? How does it differ from what I've described elsewhere as some of the classical C's, you know, um, cooperation, coexistence, um, coercion, um, containment, um, um, competition, conflict? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's a pretty nasty set of C's there when you think about it all. So Cooperation, not so much, but... <laughs> well, when you think of the others at the other end of the spectrum. Sure. So you put all that together. Um, does their concept of a new type of great power relationship create a new conceptual reality, uh, which a country like the United States and, frankly, the rest of us and the collective West can also live with, and that um, appropriately responds to China's own interests and its own sense of itself and the future global order as well. And the second part is this. Operationally, what would it look like beyond conceptual beyond conceptual elegance? And that's a large part of the reason I'm here at Harvard. Last year in Foreign Affairs magazine, um, you wrote about the distinction between uh, the threat that China's uh, development poses to its regional neighbors and the uncertainty that it causes. Uh, you wrote, and I'm quoting here, For foreigners, the core question is whether China will continue to work cooperatively within the current rules-based global order once it has acquired great power status, or instead seek to reshape that order more in its own image. So at this point, is there any indication that one or the other is more likely? I think uh, both in Beijing and elsewhere, the jury is out. And there are multiple constituencies in China trying to work their way through this subject as we speak. I think it's fair to say right now what China is seeking to do, as most nation states in history have done, is to maximise their national power. Of course, the drivers for that are essentially domestic. How do you lift people's living standards? How do you grow the economy as a result? And how do you therefore begin to be able to exert more influence around your region and the world? And so most countries do that anyway, uh, if they have the opportunity to so do. The second and real question is, shall I say, the normative question which I pose in that piece in Foreign Affairs, which is that having obtained, as Chinese reformers dreamed for the last century, national wealth and power, how then would you use it? Mm -hmm. That's where the seminar is ongoing in Beijing as we speak. Mm -hmm. And of course, if you like, the, uh, the two classical alternatives are, well, to take Bob Zellick's phrase of some time ago, we the Chinese become responsible global, global stakeholders, though they loathe each of those terms uh, in, within their own lexicon. But the concept is basically how do we sustain the current global rules-based order uh, because it's of sufficient benefit to us as well as everyone else for us to help sustain it with the Americans into the future. Or, given that we are China and we don't share American values, and that we are, at the end of the day, something more approaching a state capitalist system, and that we have no intention of democratizing ourselves. how do we reflect different values and different interests in the future reconstruction of the global rules-based order? I think it's worth saying here, I think what I said in that article, that when China becomes the world's largest economy, it'll be the first time since George III, who I seem to remember gave this country a difficult time uh, in its revolutionary history, uh, was on the throne of England 
that you will have a non-Western, non-English-speaking, non-democratic state as the world's largest economy. Mm-hmm. In other words, since the time of your independence. Right. Um, this, I think, is uh, a genuinely global question. And therefore, the responsibility for the rest of us is to constructively uh, engage in the development not just of Chinese thinking and practice on these questions, but similarly uh, to respond appropriately as well if our objective is to encourage the Chinese to sustain the, f- the current system into the future. There's clearly a significant cultural divide between Chinese and certainly the United States. Are our diplomatic efforts playing into uh, Chinese cultural sensibilities properly to you know, engage them in that discussion? I think it's uh, one of the great red herrings of uh, global diplomacy to assume that every culture is so massively culturally sensitive that we can't engage them on basic questions of national interests, national values, and if you like, national power. I think all countries ultimately, when you strip the cultural and civilizational questions aside, have a similar prism through which they view things, view these things. That doesn't mean I'm a classic realist international relations theory terms. In fact, I have a more complex worldview than that. Um, but I therefore don't buy the cultural sensitivity argument. What I do think, though, we need to do is as we look to the future of the current global rules-based order, which we've all spent the last three quarters of a century fashioning out of the ashes of the Second World War, and we Australians were co-authors of the uh, UN Charter together with the Americans and others back in San Francisco Conference in '45, is we ne- now need to look at uh, how the order... Um, Uh, is uh, sustained into the future uh, in a manner which is able to explain itself into a Chinese domestic political audience, which had nothing to do with the creation of the UN Charter, which had nothing to do with um, the formation of the Atlantic Charter, which had nothing to do with uh, US alliance systems in Asia, um, but has benefited from uh, the US uh, global and security and economic order nonetheless. How do we using Chinese language and concepts interpolate that into their own domestic politics so that it's comprehensible. Mm-hmm. Uh, we in the West are, pretty, are notoriously bad at doing that because we think these things are self-evident truths. Mm-hmm. Well, underneath it all, they may be, hence my earlier point that much most nations are, in their essence, uh, the same. Uh, but our linguistic and cultural and civilizational traditions are different when it comes to your ability to explain a common strategic approach in language which resonates within uh, the audiences of other civilizations. Mm -hmm. Uh, That, I think, is the political and conceptual challenge for the future. As I said before, fleshing out what a new type of great power relationship is is one thing. The two answers to it are equally conceptual in language which means something in the American tradition of um, US exceptionalism um, and its sense of global responsibility, as well as in the Chinese concepts of its own notion of the state and its place uh, in an order beyond its own, beyond the boundaries of the Middle Kingdom. And it's as much that as it is the operational question to say, well, what does that mean for the Korean Peninsula? What mm-hmm. does it mean for an Aedes in the East, uh, East um, China Sea? Mm-hmm. What does it mean for territorial claims in the South China Sea? What does it mean in terms of uh, Russian engagement with China into the future, um, et cetera? That's why I was in Moscow last week. Mm-hmm. Your experience in particular seems especially interesting in this case because uh, Australia being a regional neighbor of China, 
uh, you had to engage with the potential uncertainty that this, di- you know, this changing dynamic causes. What did that did that help inform your uh, your interest in this in this topic? Or well, look, we are who we are, and I, um, not particularly uniquely, bring various attributes to the table. I suppose I'm a scholar of China. Uh, I enjoy its history. Mm-hmm. Uh, I speak its language. Um, when I can, wading into its classical literature is kind of fun. Um, I like China as a country. I like its people. Um, I've studied its politics. I've studied its economics. But I've also engaged China, not um, just as an academic. In fact, I really have. I've been there as a diplomat. I've been there as a businessman. I've been there as a foreign minister. And I've been there as a prime minister. Mm-hmm. And I've been there as a nothing. And so, and just um, Joe Blow. <laughs> Um, and uh, each tier of engagement with China adds to your knowledge of the place. Um, the first thing you say uh, after all those years of engagement is, this is a very proud civilization, it's a very proud culture, it's a very proud country, as we all are of our own countries, but with such civilizational depth of 5,000 years of uninterrupted history that you know you're dealing with some accumulated wisdom there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the second thing is uh, you know that uh, this is a political force uh, since 1949 which has no intention whatsoever of going through what it did in previous centuries of uh, external foreign humiliation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will not do that again. Um, thirdly, you encounter a China where personal freedom now, given where it was when I first went to work there 30 years ago, is like um, six out of 10 on the Richter scale of personal freedom as opposed to two out of 10 on the Richter scale when I went there. Mm-hmm. Uh, people only had uh, two choices for what clothes you wore back then, green or blue. Uh, now it's it's just a riot. Mm-hmm. Um, so for those things, uh, you look at China in multiple capacities over 30 years and you say, quite remarkable progress has been achieved. And then you look at the other side of the ledger and it is still a one-party state. Um, uh, we look at the other side of the ledger and we see enormous environmental despoilation, which the Chinese leadership is now directly seized of. If you look at the language coming out of the most recent National People's Congress uh, in Beijing, um, and so therefore it is um, a um, a, um, a new set of challenges uh, for the Chinese as well. So the only thing I bring to bear of multiple experiences over a long period of time is someone who has an affection for the country. Um, but someone who still uh, exercises a very critical eye, mm-hmm. um, as uh, as I think genuine friends of China do. Well, given all that experience, how did China's increased role and you know the potential uncertainty that comes from it guide your efforts in Australia? That's a very good question. It's a simple question, which is, what then did you do? <laughs> yeah. uh, that's good. It's an important question. We can talk as much as we like. It's what you actually do. Um, with the Chinese, uh, we um, uh, increased um, the regularity and the intensity of our political, economic, security dialogue. Uh, we rapidly expanded our trade so that on our watch, China became our largest trading partner in the world. Uh, we commenced, um, or we continued, I should say, free trade negotiations with the Chinese, which I hope will reach conclusion at some stage soon. At the same time, we uh, engaged in the enhancement of our uh, political and security uh, dialogue and engagement with the Republic of Korea, with Japan, with Indonesia, and with India. 
Uh, we also, for ourselves, mindful of the uncertainties in our wider region in the future, invested considerably in the expansion and modernization of the Royal Australian Navy. Um, and uh, we've also enhanced our intelligence cooperation with allies and friends right around the region and the world. And so we in Australia uh, do not have a myopically um, positive view that everything uh, coming out of the Middle Kingdom will be just fine and dandy. Um, we have a pragmatic view of these things. But if I was to be a betting man, I'd say uh, if, we, if our policies towards China are right um, and they are based on an intelligent engagement with China about where we want China itself in its own interest to go in the future vis-a-vis -vis the global rules-based order and the rules-based order, then on balance we can be optimistic that we can pull this thing off and that we won't be dragged into uh, Graham Allison's Thucydides trap. Well, with that, Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be here at Harvard, and um, may uh, those who listen to this podcast uh, enjoy what promises to be an ongoing Bostonian winter. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully ends soon. But <laughs> You've been listening to HKS PolicyCast, a production of Harvard Kennedy School. Hear more interviews at hks.harvard.edu slash policycast. And join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag policycast. <laughs> <laughs>